The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast this week. I'm so excited to be speaking with Dr. Arielle August. Uh, She is a general surgery resident currently in California. She's had an amazing story about her pathway to medicine. She's accomplished so many things. Um, Ariel, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So first of all, thank you for making the time as a general surgery resident. I'm sure you don't have a whole lot of free time in your hands, typically. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, But I love... uh... Spreading the story, spreading the word, getting medicine out there, and just being like a visible face. So, so excited that you started this podcast and really excited to be a part of it. Yeah, let's start with your story, your background. And it's a bit unique because I'm not sure many people decide to become surgeons at the age of eight. <laughs> how, did you know, yeah. how did you know what a surgeon was? And, and tell us about your, your progress through that. Oh my goodness. So um, I, I was a precocious, annoying child, um, as you can probably <laughs> gather that I wanted to be a surgeon at the age of eight. Um, so I was obsessed with animals when I was younger, as most little girls often are. Um, and, and I started riding around that time. So when I first started horseback riding, I was eight or nine years old. Um, and I remember finding out that racehorses, when they break a leg, um, how do you put down? And I was just like, oh my goodness, that's awful. I want to fix that. I was like, maybe we can make a prosthetic leg for horses. And I asked my parents, I was like, okay, who does that? Who would make that kind of thing? And they're like, oh, a biomedical engineer. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. That's what I'll do. Um, so I decided then that I was going to be a biomedical engineer mm-hmm. um, and started reading about those things. And I was like, wait, I also want to implant the prosthetics that I'm making. <laughs> and so... <laughs> I was like, which I was like, I probably need to be a surgeon to like then attach this to the animal, um, and then it evolved from horses basically to people. So that's how I got um, decided very early that I wanted to to do kind of biomedical engineering and then becoming a surgeon. And it, it morphed a little bit over time um, because I was more interested with with human prosthetics and things like that because I was really into Star Wars and iRobot and was thinking, why can't we have these? You know prosthetic limbs that you can't tell the difference between, you know, a regular limb. Again, I'm like 10 at this point. Uh, (laughs) And so I was like, well, I'll be a neurosurgeon and work on the brain machine interface and also design these prosthetics. And I read a bunch of books by neurosurgeons. Yes. Including Ben Carson's book. Um, uh, It's fine. Yep. (laughs) And uh, there's lots of things I can say about that, but whatever. Um, And then a few, and a few others. And then as I, I, I stuck with it. I stuck with biomedical engineering and applied to Duke um, directly to the Pratt School of Engineering to do that and have that be my major. And all through undergrad, I worked in a neuroprosthetics lab, um, had a fantastic mentor. Um, I started as a Howard Hughes fellow in his lab the summer after my freshman year and stayed all the way through my gap year. Wow. Um, yeah. So I, I did five years of like deep brain stimulation research, still thinking that I was going to like build prosthetics and implant them into the people myself. <laughs> That's impressive. I get an idea and I stick to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I see. I didn't know where that story was uh, going at first. You're talking about horses breaking their legs and getting put down, but it took a turn for the better. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, I like to think of it. Like, I take a problem with a sad ending and hopefully make it come to a more positive, more positive end. Yeah, so I can't imagine, you know, Duke being a very extremely rigorous school and you were studying 
biomechanical engineering. How did you navigate that degree? That is a great question. And the answer is very poorly. Uh, I I, I mean, like I said, everything turned out okay. I mean, (laughs) I'm at the end of the life, but now I can go back and talk about it with a smile. Um, So I was very, anyways, my parents wanted me to go to like this preparatory high school and do like the IB program and all of that. And I was very against it. I was like, I want to stay at the public high school with my friends and stay here. And my parents were like, fine, you can do that, but you have to be valedictorian. And I was Uh like, okay, whatever. Right. Um, But funny story. Yes, I was able to be successfully valedictorian of my high school. um, And it was great. And I worked really hard and did a lot of AP classes. But I got to, uh, you know, engineering school at Duke, and it was still very, very different and much, much harder (laughs) than, (laughs) than I had been challenged before. And so I really, I really struggled, um, especially for maybe the first two, two years of like having to learn how I study, which I still don't think I successfully did until medical school. There were also a lot of challenges around being kind of like isolated and alone in the engineering school. As you can imagine, there yeah. were not a lot of black women. There weren't a lot of black students in general. Um, and Duke itself is, is very, um, kind of self-segregated, I would say in the page in the, um, a patient population in the student population. <laughs> and so all of my friends that I had were n- not in my classes. And so I, like, I, I found out later that people were like inviting each other to study groups that like I was never invited yeah. to and, 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 you know, and things like that, that, you know, looking back, it made, you know, it made things tougher. Like people were completing assignments together and I'm like struggling by myself trying to figure out, you know, EDR 53, um, quote, quoting like LaTeX. And it's just like, I, you know, <laughs> so, and, and it led to definitely a difficulty with applying to medical school. So I applied my senior year, um, just like so I had my senior grades as a part of my, my transcript and still, um, had a really tough time. Wow. And then you took the gap year where you stayed on to work on some projects. Yeah. So I stayed, um, I, at that time, so when I applied to medical school, um, and I think it's important to share this story because everyone has these issues applying to medical school. And like, you look like now it's like, Oh, she went to Dartmouth. And then there's now that Stanford, I'm the general surgery resident. It looks like this like very like colorful path. But, um, when I was finishing in engineering and I was like, I was told multiple times, like, Oh, if your goal is to get to medical school, you should do an easier major, you know, and not like, put yourself through this, but right. like, I really enjoyed, and I really enjoyed what I was learning. And, and I didn't, I didn't feel good about that of just like quitting because I, I wasn't able to keep a 4.0, you know? And, and I am still to this day glad that I didn't, but it, it, it did cause some challenges. So when I said, no, I'm not leaving engineering, I didn't kind of <laughs> open myself up to, you know, having further criticism of um, a difficult um, application. So I applied to like 40 medical schools, got two invites um, which is very strange. I got two um, interviews, one at Dartmouth and one at USC, and then got waitlisted at both and then got into Dartmouth off the waitlist. Wow. Um, yeah. And that was the only school I got accepted into, which is, you know, when you sounded like, oh, she went to Dartmouth for medical school, it sounds like I had lots of options, <laughs> but I actually didn't, which is kind of, you know, crazy to think about. Especially so, especially with the the background of and what you brought to the the table. Exactly. So yeah, it didn't matter. I had tons of first author publications and, you know, all this work in a neuroprosthetics lab and, you know, of course, all the standard like volunteering. And I was vice president of the National Society of Black Engineers. So like, it wasn't just like, but I had, but I had like very mediocre grades. I think my, I think my graduating GPA honestly was like a 3.1, which, you know, in med school, like that's impossible to get anywhere. And so I really was like banking on the holistic review. Right. And like, I promise I'm not, you know, stupid. Look at my major, look at what I (laughs) doing. <laughs> Deep brain stimulation. But, 
exactly right and and so and for that i always have a soft spot um, a soft spot in my my heart for dartmouth in a sense they like took a chance on me um and i actually then served on their admissions committee as a student member for two years hoping to kind of pay it pay it back pay it forward yeah that's that's incredible so you talked about you know you just shared navigating from well since you were eight through high school college and on to medical school how did you manage to navigate those spaces as, uh, like you mentioned in this previous article, I read a triple minority. So being a black gay woman in these spaces that are predominantly filled with people that don't look like you and don't have your background. Yeah, um, it was part, some parts were more difficult than others. And so it's, it's always really interesting when I get that question, because so much of it is, I don't know anything else, right? You can't, you can't miss what you never had. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so all through school from elementary to high school, I would be in gifted classes or AP classes. And, and often one of the only black students, I grew up in South Florida, um, West Palm beach area, um, which is super diverse. Like it's a huge, it's like, I loved growing up there. Lots of, um, diversity, lots of immigrants, like, had friends of all backgrounds, but it still was like very distinct of like who was in my classes and who wasn't. Um, so always an academic sphere, I was, you know, kind of, you know, one of only or one of a few. And that was just normal and what, and, and how it was. Um, and then getting to Duke was a kind of another difference of that is where it's like, okay, I was surrounded with like other really like, um, of other black kids that also like academically rigorous, very smart and intelligent, but they still weren't necessarily part of the engineering school. And yeah. I was like, oh man, I was like, still, like alone. <laughs> still alone. Right. And I was like, I'm still alone. Um, and navigating that, um, particularly like, and it, that was a double whammy. And that was the first time I really got, um, kind of faced like front and center, like being treated differently. Like we would do, like I said, not being invited to study groups. We would do, um, we had like senior design projects and group projects where like, I would clearly like say something or a student idea, it would be completely ignored. And then like three minutes later, someone would say the same thing. Mm. And like, I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. Um, and like part of these grades are like patient or like our peer participation. Like you graded each other right. for like part of your grade, you know? And then it's like, oh, she doesn't contribute. I was like, what do you mean? Every time I contribute <laughs> something, it gets ignored and then stolen later. And I, I, I remember one time I did end up talking to a professor about it and saying, hey, like I can show you independent work if that's helpful, but I don't want this like peer grade to ruin my, <laughs> my grade because it's not, I think, an accurate description. And I don't even, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize they do it they do it, you know, subconsciously. I'm sure if you ask anyone, they would never like blatantly be like, oh yeah, we're totally just ignoring that person in our group. Right. Um, but everyone, but everyone has implicit biases of like, you know, who should be listened to and who should be heard in, in a group setting. And, and then it was interesting. I came out in college um, and that was like its own, you know, evolution. I, I'm very lucky that my like family is very accepting of me. It was not like a huge, you know, terrible thing that like it can be for some for some people where the families are a little less accepting but it was still a, a time where I was kind of finding myself and figuring out my identity and who you know and what I felt comfortable with and there are very clear um like also a kind of cliques and cultures amongst the gay community or lgbtq community and at duke like i didn't fit in with that yeah, one either right. and so it was like you know i was I, like i wasn't gay enough or i wasn't doing you know i wasn't being the right kind of lesbian for like them and so then i was like <laughs> okay um Ugh. i guess i'll just figure this out on my own <laughs> and, and so over time it, it really became 
uh, I think as we grow, it gets a lot easier to define yourself rather than trying to divide, define yourself by those who you are around, right? Like so much of high school, middle school and high school is like you trying to fit in. And I think what I've taken moving forward is that like, I'm never going to fit in anywhere. And so I just, I, I, I now take pride in like standing out. And I think I talked a lot about that in the in the article of being like, everyone's like, Oh, I don't want the, don't label me. But I was like, you know what? Give me all the labels. I'm fine. Like I will own all of my labels. And then like those who come after me will be able to find me because I am labeled. <laughs> you <Yeah. know? laughs> and you know, I, so I started just try to empower myself and, you know, take it back as we've done with a lot of things in culture. <laughs> no, that's, that's great because so many people coming behind you share some of those, maybe all of them, maybe just a couple yeah. of those labels. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I think I wrote my, residency personal statement about that of saying like I want to be a visible face a visible different face in in academic medicine in surgery and I want to be found I want to know like I want little girls little black girls little black gay girls white girls anyone to know that like it is possible like and they are people that look like me out there in the world doing cool things um yeah absolutely and as an anesthesiologist like there's nothing I love more than seeing um, woman, especially women of color in yeah. these spaces. My really good friend, Noel, she was an orthopedic surgery resident. We worked together. My friend Ashley was a general surgery resident and just seeing, um, how they controlled the room and just took charge of these testosterone driven yeah. ORs. It's great. Um, I, and I think it's, it's awesome that we're, we're drawing attention to it now and, and, and showing it's possible. And it, it is really empowering. Anytime I have like, it wasn't until, I got to Stanford that I even had met a black female attend, like attending surgeon. Wow. Um, Cause again, I went to medical school at Dartmouth. <laughs> Great place. <laughs> what are you saying? Um, it's, it's still in the middle of New Hampshire. Um, and so yeah, it was, it was kind of crazy to think that because at first I was like, Oh, you know, that's totally reasonable. I was like, wait, no, that's not reasonable. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So now that you're a senior surgery resident, you're, doing research then you have two years left uh almost research within three years uh we were the we're the so now i guess like right in the middle mid-level um we do so all the academic surgery programs now are like seven years so we do two clinical years two research years and then our, our last three clinical years um and i'm my second of my research years now and it has been fantastic <laughs> <laughs> I, I can only imagine so when you started residency did you know that yeah this was definitely the right thing for me or did you think what the heck did I get myself into oh I I had heard all the horror stories and I felt very strongly that I wanted to get out in a way so I did a lot of sub eyes and tried to like live the life um so that I wouldn't be so jarred when I got to residency I I knew it was for me I just still never like I don't think anyone loves it, right? No, no, no one's like, oh, this is awesome. Like, this is so fun. Um, but what but what was nice, and I think, and for me, I went into surgery because I really do love being in the OR and I love operating. And at least even as an intern, our, our program is good about getting like interns into the OR. Just like you need that to like remind you why you're doing right. it, right? <laughs> to why you're like doing this other thing. So like every time I go to the OR, I would like be refreshed and be like, okay, all right. Just got to like, you know, the few more interagency orders to discharge this person to sniff, and then I can come back. To, and I can go, you know, back to the OR. I won't, you know, be answering pages about Tylenol forever. But I, I, I always, I definitely knew it was for me. I don't think I was definitely one of the people that 
um, it was either surgery or bust. Yeah. Um, it was like, if I, if I wasn't going to be a surgeon, I just wouldn't be in medicine. And so, and that, and that stuck with me. And even now in my research years, uh, while it's nice to, you know, have more free time and I still take call every time I, I go back in the OR, I was like, Oh yeah, I really like this. I'm glad I'm like good, good. finishing this. And it's what a, what a cool way to make a, you know, make a career. Right. I think one of the things I liked reading the story, your story was I, I kind of identified with you and one of the passions that you have, I, don't have a passion for horses, but you do. <laughs> You're very passionate about um, the was it equestrian arts or sports? Yeah, equestrian sports, equestrian arts, equestrianism. Uh, I don't know the appropriate <laughs> like show jumping. That's what I like. To do. And, uh, so I I'm a musician and I played a couple instruments, uh, but all through college and medical school, I had to keep picking up my instruments, putting them down, picking them back up, putting them down for uh, whatever happened to be going on in life. And I saw that kind of modeled in your story but you've been riding horses since nine yeah so i well with lots of picking up and putting down so i again i I watched a lot of movies uh, and i saw a movie about actually barrel racing so when i first started to ride it was western um so i was thinking you know cowboys and that kind of thing uh but then i saw someone jumping over jumps and i was like oh that's really cool i want to do that instead so i switched to english and so from about ages nine to 12 or 13, I rode pretty um, competitively. I switched from like this kind of small barn to a big show barn in Wellington, Florida, which is a big area where show jumping is really, really big um, and did that really competitively. But as you know, it's in, absorbably expensive, like incredibly expensive by any standards. And it's just not a sport for <laughs> the average human. Now, do, you, um, do you own the horse that you're riding? I do not. I do not own the horse that I am riding. I am leasing her, um, which you can do like a car. And so huh. I literally have like a monthly payment, <laughs> um, <laughs> which, yeah. Do other people get to ride her, him or her? Um, not right now while I am doing a full lease. Uh, so I am doing a full lease of this horse for a short period of time while I can afford it, um, which is mostly afforded by my tech job plus moonlighting. Um, and it's still a really, it's really hard to swing. Um, I'll be honest. It's, it's kind of every once in a while I have a moment of like, this is ridiculous, Ariel, but it brings me like, it just makes me so happy. And it has been like a dream to be able to like continue to show competitively since I, you know, was like 10 years old that, you know, it's, it's really nice to, to make it happen, even if it's for a short period of time. Wow. So you're leasing a horse. How often do you need to, like, how do you go see him or is it a him or her? It's, it's a her. A her. So you see her every a mare. day yeah. or mare? I see her six days a week. Um, wow. So I, yeah, um, my yeah, schedule's kind of crazy. So because I, she and she's a show horse. So like very nice horse that I could compete on because I'm a very competitive person. Anyone that knows I me see. in real life will like, will, will you know, <laughs> we'll vouch for that to a T. And so like, I really like riding cause I like competing. Like I, I enjoy it for pleasure as well, but like my, my, my purpose is to compete. <laughs> like I need, I need that. Um, so I have to train. And because I went before I started this lease back in September, I had not ridden in 10 years. Oh. Um, the last time I rode was my junior year of college on my college, um, like club equestrian team so they had like a club team that you can ride on with like much less fee like with lower fees and that kind of thing um and it still was expensive but 
So I had been off for 10 years and I found this great trainer who was willing to work with me at odd hours of the day um, that I could come out and ride, found me this horse that was um, in the horse world, a bargain, <laughs> um, but, but still had, um, the ability, right. <laughs> oh, if I told you, you'd laugh so hard. You don't yeah, even know. No, don't, <laughs> don't, don't tell me. <laughs> I'm not going to and so <laughs> found this, found this, you know, bargain horse, um, so that I could compete on. And so I ride six days a week. Um, the barns are closed and the horses have Mondays off. Um, so mm. I ride about, I, I either ride in the mornings before like my nine to five starts or I go at lunchtime or I uh, do later evenings if I'm post call. Because sometimes I'll like, I often am working either Thursday nights or Saturday nights clinically. And then um, rather than ri- riding like immediately the next morning, because it's kind of like operating heavy machinery, you don't want to <laughs> do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, post call. Um, I usually will then try to ride in the afternoons, but it means I've had very little time for just like, relaxing in this last year, which is kind of funny because I'm supposed to be like storing up all of my fuel cells before I go back to full-time clinical time in June. But I've just been extending, I've been kind of working residency hours just to make the riding happen. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. But, that, but worth it. Yeah. 100% worth it. And that, and that speaks <laughs> to like, you know, people always ask about time management and honestly, I'm not great at time management, but I do make time for the things that I love. Right. And, and that's what it comes down to, right? There's no work-life balance lulls. Um, it's, it, it, it comes down to prioritize. What are, what are you going to prioritize this day? You know, it's, it, it's just what I mean. And, and there have been days where I've been like so tired that I was like, okay, I'm sorry. I just like can't get up to go ride today. Like it'll be okay if I only train five days a week this week. Um, and there have been times where um, I was going to take an extra shift because I needed the money. And I was, and my partner will be like, you're not supposed to kill yourself. That's not the point. Like, you know, and so I'll give it away to like someone else. And like, sometimes I'm recognizing that like, that's a new skill. Like, I got very much was like, I can do all the things, anything, no matter what, <laughs> who needs sleep. Um, but learning that like, it's okay on time, like on occasion to be like, you know, give yourself space to be human, take a nap, you know, take a day, a day off, you know, the, the whole point of research, be able to take sick days, but you can't do it residency, yeah. but, but you can, I can this year. So. so geez, what's your mayor's name? Uh, so her bar name is Rue. Her show name is no Pablo. No, she oh. came with this name. It's hilarious. Wait. I think it's, <laughs> she's got two names. Yeah. So like way horses work, they have a show name, like show horses. They have like a show. It's like, um, I don't know. Dog, like same like show dogs or like, um, race horses have like these really complicated names. Um, same thing. So they'll have Seabiscuit. like complicated sh- Exactly. They'll have like these weird, complicated show names, but then they have like a nickname that you just call them at the barn. Cause like some horses are like, like my friend's horses, Odessa's Ica Marcus W. Hmm. Like we're not going to go around calling that. We just call him market. We just call him Marcus. You know? <laughs> All right. We got a shout out to Rue yeah. cause oh man, she's obviously very special to you. So special. I'm so sad. Her, her, her go back to go back home date is coming up. Off lease. <laughs> yep. I think she's going to go back to the owner um, for now. I don't know if they have someone lined up to lease her again yet. Oh man. Oh yeah. Well, enjoy while it lasts. Exactly. So tell me about this trip to Tanzania and how did that impact your career or open up your eyes? Yeah. So, uh, that was a trip I took during the, you know, what they call the the last summer. So the summer vacation between first and second year of medical school. Um, and I had actually gotten a grant to study, um, 
pediatric lung, the lung function in pediatric HIV patients because Dartmouth has a clinic actually in Dar es Salaam. And I think one of the things that just struck me most while I was there um, was uh, the providers, like the doctors and the nurses, their ability to do so much with like the incredibly limited resources that they did have. And I was at, you know, the big national hospital um, with probably more resource than a lot of the more rural areas. And there's still just like stark contrast um, to the United States where we spend a lot of money on a lot of things that don't necessarily make a big difference um, in patient care. Um, and I was wondering like, okay, how do we close these gaps? Um, um, and stemming similarly from my undergrad degree in biomedical engineering, I was always interested in like kind of problem solving. Like that was just like my, my interest. And that really drove me to think about, um, so I did my senior design and, um, design, I did designing for people with disabilities. And there was also like designing for, um, low resource settings. That was really interesting to kind of learn about like, what are the limitations of like supply chain and electricity of things? And like, how do you create, um, medical devices for these different kind of, um, you know, resource limited settings. And mm. so that pushed me really to, to think about the, the biodesign innovation fellowship, which is what I did for my first research year. Um, and it's a program at Stanford that teaches you, um, a needs, like a needs-based innovation approach to medical device design. Uh, cause I, I thought I knew this was something I wanted to incorporate into my career. Like I, I always, I, as you figured out, I went to general surgery instead of neurosurgery. <laughs> I got to medical, I got to medical school hated neurosurgery, but loved general surgery, had a big like life crisis. Cause again, since I was eight, I thought I was going to be a neurosurgeon. Um, but I'm so happy. I, I made this decision uh, <laughs> to this day of thinking like, okay, how can I like further equip myself with the tools to, to think about these problems and think about them intelligently and, and more of a building infrastructure and, and drawing attention to these things. Right. So I, um, after doing the, I did the fellowship, but I also worked with um, an organization called Lifebox, Safer Surgery, oh, yeah. um, of trying to help, yeah, surgical outcomes and in, in, in lower resource settings. So one of my mentors, um, Tom Weiser, is a very is a, is a leader at that organization, and they did the project with looking at the pulse oximeter, just really helping improve outcomes in surgery, and worked with him on a project creating a surgical headlight um, for for lower resource settings, and kind of using my engineering background with my you know desire to kind of help with disparities in care and also like kind of sustainable outlets and where surgical headlights here in the United States are still like multiple thousands of dollars. And at the end of the day, it's still just a headlight. Right. I'm thinking like, what can we, you know, what can we do to like, there's something that could work for both, you know, resource settings. Right. Um, so I like thinking about those kinds of problems and it just reminds me that, you know, I, I think healthcare is, is human right and, and should do what you can to help, to help everyone. That's incredible. And, Hearing your story from you has been awesome to track your progress through all of the extremely rigorous academic settings you've been through. And I think it's fitting that you ended up out west in Stanford where you guys are innovating yeah. so much stuff. I think definitely the, the match works in mysterious ways. It was I, I definitely was not um, I was an East Coast kid. I was like, oh, man. But I came out here um, for a Dartmouth has a a rotation with CPMC, California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco. And San Francisco is really cool. And I happened to link up with one of the pediatric surgeons there who's actually worked at Stanford. And I came with her down to Stanford and saw it and was really cool. I applied like on a whim. And when I interviewed, I just loved it here. And I was like, oh man, am I going to move out to California? Like, is that like, is that my, my next path? And I, I did, and I, I was lucky enough to match here. And it's, it's definitely been one of the greatest just like career paths 
choices, decisions, fortuitous events, because it's still a match to happen. I, I think there's no place that I would rather be. And I think it's just been so perfect for how I want to build my career and have an impact in this world. Absolutely. Dr. August, uh, in the in your email signature, you, you mentioned or listed the IDEO Design for Health Studio. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm, as you said, I'm out in Silicon Valley now. Um, so um, health tech, med tech is really, really big here, um, and specifically in Palo Alto. And IDEO is a design consultancy firm that works with um, lots of many different organizations, companies to help solve problems. Um, and I remember they have a close t- ties to the biodesign program. And so when I was finishing my biodesign innovation fellowship, which is, you know, you learn about a lot about design thinking and um, solving healthcare problems, I decided to do an externship with them. And I chose that, again, being from the East Coast, I didn't actually know much about IDEO, but out here on the West Coast, they're like a big deal. Like everyone knows about IDEO as this like famous consulting firm for design. And I looked at their website and they were just like, we're doing all these cool things. It, it looked like where you went if you wanted to be an inventor. Hmm. And like that eight-year-old kid in me, again, Uh-oh. was like real life. I was like, <laughs> oh man, this is so cool. They were like, help women take control of like their birth control or like, how do you, you know, like all these like cool problems that sounded awesome. And so I chose to do my, my externship or I applied to do my externship um, with them. That was last May in 2020, like right before you know, the world yeah. shut down right before COVID. Like I interviewed in January and actually went to the studio. But by the time it got uh, time to do my externship in like April, um, it was all remote. So yeah, I did an externship there and it was just so fun and exciting and like learn to use like the creative part of my brain to solve healthcare problems. So they have, they have design there's like a food studio and there's change and learning. And of course there's a health studio that works on, on projects and health. And so again, like companies or organizations or whatever come with a problem and and, and we help them try to solve it. And um, my kind of role in the studio is to bring a physician lens to to these problems. Because again, when you're working in healthcare, there's always different aspects that others who are not in the healthcare system don't understand or know like how the workflow works and, and thinking about how to implement something, whether it's a, you know, new device or a new um, just patient experience into the workflow if there's going to be, you know, patients and, and physicians using it or interacting with it. And so it's like a good combination of like my clinical background with my engineering background, plus my, you know, my new design thinking chops that I learned during biodesign to work with a lot of uh, really cool things and, and really feel like you're making it, you're making a, an impact on a larger scale. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I'm personally inspired and enamored by everything you've accomplished. <laughs> uh, like you told, oh, uh, you. like you told Forbes, I'm, I'm not Forbes. I'm just a guy <laughs> with a podcast, but you said you want to be a visible face in academic surgery. And I think, you know, you're making amazing strides to do and to become just that. Oh, thank you. Um, also love to close on the point you brought up that we should all take pride in our labels and champion them and, and be our true selves. Yeah, absolutely. I a big advocate for that. I think, I think, like I said, a lot of power comes from, from owning, from owning things that people want to give you anyway. Right. Absolutely. So Dr. August in closing, what's next for you? Where do you see yourself? Um, I don't know, white house Ooh. president of the world, the eight year old girl may <laughs> decide to, to become that. Right. Oh my gosh. That's one job I do not want. I do not ever want to be president. <laughs> 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 this sounds, this sounds like an awful job. Um, 
I don't know. We'll see. I go back as our third year is a lot of elective time. So I think it's going to be narrowing down exactly what kind of surgeon I want to be. Uh, like I said, I'm training in general surgery, but I've loved um, hepatobiliary a lot, surgical oncology. I'm, I'm interested to, to really dig back into operating and see, you know, as far as my clinical practice, what I want to focus in. And then also thinking about how I plan to, to build my, my clinical life and keep design and innovation um, on the forefront, you know, whether that's designing here in my own backyard or designing for lower resource settings. Uh, I think I think that's I think those are my big steps. It's like figuring out it's going to be how, what kind of surgeon and, and what's my next uh, big device innovation. Okay, okay. I'm ready to spin out my own company. It's my next it's my next move. <laughs> awesome. Well, if you, you you need somebody, hook a brother up. I got you. I got you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. We'll all stay tuned, and, and at least we know your name. We'll be looking out for you and uh, waiting for you to do these incredible, amazing things. Thank you. Thank you. Excited. Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.